Well, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to the psalm that Sam read for us, Psalm 32. And what you notice immediately about this psalm is that it is a psalm for the guilty. The last few weeks of this summer, we have been looking at psalms for the vulnerable, for those who are at risk, but, but often the, the threat was outside of the psalmist. The, the threat was coming at them from the world. But, but here now, David is still vulnerable, but he's vulnerable because of his own sin. We see that this is a psalm for the guilty clearly in the first few verses that, that David writes. He, he speaks of one whose life is marked by transgression, by sin, and by Iniquity, And I think, I think all three of those terms are important. First, transgression. A transgression is the, the violation of a boundary. It's, it's going somewhere you're not supposed to go. Earlier this week, I had a flat tire out on the side of the road, and the signs uh, on the driveway that where I was uh, stuck made it very clear that they did not want anyone entering their property. No trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted. To trespass is to go where you're not supposed to go. It is to to cross a boundary, to do something you're not supposed to do, a a malicious thought, a harsh word, or a destructive action. What What we sometimes call sins of commission because they are sins that we commit. God's law says do not steal, and we transgress it By stealing, by by taking that which is not rightfully ours. God's law says do not murder, and we transgress it by murdering, whether physically or mentally, as Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. So so transgression is doing what we ought not to do. But but second, David mentions sin. And the word for for sin here suggests missing the mark or or falling short of the standard. And we transgress God's law when we do what we ought not to do, but we sin when we fail to do what we ought to do. When we fail to be uh, the people we ought to be, what we call sins of omission. God's law says to honor your parents. God's law says to love your neighbor. God's law says to protect the marginalized and the oppressed. And we sin by omission when we fail to do these things. And so we can, we can sin either by, by doing what we ought not to do or by, by failing to do what we, we ought to do. And David calls all of this iniquity. That's the the third term that he uses here. And it's an important term because it reminds us that the laws we have transgressed and the standards we have failed to meet are not arbitrary. God's law reflects his perfect character, his, his perfect goodness. What God forbids is truly evil. His laws are not arbitrary or or capricious. What he he commands is is truly good. Transgressions and and sins, therefore, are true wickedness. They They are inherently and essentially contrary to all that is right and good and beautiful. That's what David is talking about. He's talking about transgressions. He's he's talking about sins. He's talking about true iniquity. And he's talking to someone whose life is marked by these things. 
And we need to have this clearly in our minds as we read this psalm. We we need to understand that, that David is addressing people who are truly guilty. People who have done what they ought not to have done. People who have left undone what they ought to have done. People who have, by both their actions and their inactions, vandalized and and broken God's shalom. Harming their neighbors, violating justice, breaking peace, defaming the very name and glory of God. We need to have this clearly in our minds because we are such people. We need to have this in our minds because we need to know that this psalm is for us. If you could read my journals, you you can't, but if you could, you would read page after page of lament. It's not the only thing I write, of course, but but lament is a major part of what I write. And and the laments are not primarily for things going on out there in the world. There's, There's plenty out there to lament. But in my journals, my laments most often focus on my own failures, my own sins. Again and again throughout my life, I have failed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Again and again, I have failed to instruct my discip- uh, and, and discipline my children in the Lord as I should have. Again and again, I have failed to love those who have been entrusted to my care as a pastor. Again and again, I have failed to consider the interests of my neighbors before my own. I've repeatedly done things I ought not to have done, and I have failed to do those things that I was called to do, failures that that truly harmed my neighbors or or prevented them from experiencing real good. Now, by God's grace, I have not been as depraved as I could have been. I have not been as depraved as as I would have been if left to my own devices. But I must face the fact that my iniquity is real. And my iniquity is Substantial, the weight of the guilt and shame that I feel because of my sin is significant and it is real. And that is why I lament. And I suspect that every one of you here this morning knows exactly what I am talking about. You know what it is to know and to feel the weight of your own sin. You know what it is to to, to feel that you have done that which you ought not to have done. That which you wish you could take back. You you know what it is to have failed to have done what you ought to have done. To to left undone that, that chance to love your neighbor well. You know exactly what I'm talking about. To one degree or another, every one of us knows the crushing weight of guilt and sin and shame that accrues from a lifetime of failure. A lifetime of of transgression and and sin and iniquity. Again, by God's grace, we are not what we could be. But by by God's grace, we we have been uh, renewed and, and transformed and God's fruit is growing in our lives. But if we are honest with ourselves, we will admit and acknowledge that we are far 
from what we were created to be. We are far from what we are called to be. Sin and transgression and iniquity continue to stain and pollute our lives. And if we know this to be true, and if we know the burden of this weight, then we need to know what to do with it. What do you do with that guilt? What do you do with that shame? What do you do with your failures? Well, that's exactly the question that David intends to answer in this psalm. And as we will see, his answer is that we must not deny it or or downplay it in any way, nor must we simply deal with it. We, We can't do either. We can't deny it. And we can't deal with it on our own. And so what do we do? His answer is that we must confess our sins to the Lord openly and honestly so that He might deal with them fully and finally. This is what David is getting at, beginning in verses 1 and 2. He's saying, listen, this is the only way to true and lasting happiness. David writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, it's often been suggested that the word blessed there could could properly be translated as happy. Maybe Maybe you've heard that before. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. I'm not sure that's exactly correct. I don't don't think happy is the best word to to translate uh, what uh, David says here. Uh, To be blessed is to be blessed by God. To To be blessed is to receive favor from God. It is to receive from God a gift that is is truly good and and truly pure. That's that's what blessing is. Blessing is is God's gift to His children. In our context today, happy doesn't have that connotation. Happy doesn't have the the sense of receiving that which is good from God. In our our context, happy has, has more to do with our own subjective perspective, our own subjective feeling. And so I'm not sure it's, it's best to, to translate this as happy as some modern translators do. But nevertheless, the point stands. True and lasting happiness is inseparable from God's blessing. That's why the, the two words have, have some overlap. True and lasting happiness. The, the happiness that your soul craves. That, that, that happiness that you, that you cannot but desire. It is inseparable from God's blessing. It's why we sometimes sing solid joys and lasting pleasures none but Zion's children know. Only those who live in the city of God, only those who who live as His people know the, the solid joys and the lasting pleasures that truly satisfy. We were created by God. And we were created for God. And we simply cannot find true and and lasting happiness apart from Him. It's it's what Augustine said in that that famous phrase at the beginning of of his confessions. God, you have made us for yourself, and restless we will remain until we find our rest in you. That's what Jesus himself was getting at when he said that knowing the Father is eternal life. 
You see, see Jesus wasn't suggesting that, that, it's, that knowing the Father is the way to eternal life. He was saying that knowing the Father is the sum and substance of eternal life. Knowing the Father is the sum and substance of the blessed life of the age to come. In the age to come, we will dwell with God and He will dwell with us in His city and there will be no separation. And it is that knowledge of God, that that intimate relationship with God, which is the blessing of the age to come. It's what we were created for. You were created by God. You were created for God. You were were created to live in humble relationship with Him all of your days. And there simply is no lasting happiness apart from Him. And yet that is precisely what our sins keep us from. Our sins, our our transgressions, our iniquities, they separate us from God. They they cut us off from Him. As the prophet Isaiah says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. And that's true not only for unbelievers. Yes, in Christ, believers have been justified. They have been declared righteous in God's sight. And that is an unchangeable, permanent standing that is now theirs in Christ. But our, but our confession wisely says that, that when believers continue to live in their sin, those sins can, can cut them off from God's fatherly pleasure, from God's face of favor. That it can, it can be a, a hindrance to the relationship, to the enjoyment of the intimacy that, it, that we were created for. And so our sins separate us from God. They, they cut us off. And we need to know what to do with those sins. That we might find our way back into God's light, back into God's presence. And the only way back into God's presence, the only way back into his blessing, the only way back into the life of happiness and joy for which we were created, the only way back is for us to have our transgressions and our sins forgiven, to have our our sins covered, to have our iniquities not counted against us. And again, each of those phrases is important. We need to be forgiven. We need to be covered. We need need our sins not to be counted. First, we we need our transgressions to be forgiven. The word here that's that's translated forgiven means something literally like, like to be carried. Blessed is the one whose transgression is carried. Just just think about that, that image. The the idea is that our transgression is a burden. You know that. You've you've felt that. Your your transgression, your your guilt is a a burden. It is a, a crushing burden. And to be forgiven is to have that burden lifted and borne by another. When God forgives you, He takes upon Himself the crushing weight of your guilt. And of course, we know more fully and and more clearly than David ever did what our forgiveness cost God. The prophet Isaiah says that it was Jesus who bore our iniquities. And we know that he bore them upon the cross. 
As Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Or as Peter says it, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. Jesus was crushed under the weight of our guilt so that we might be declared righteous in God's sight. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He bore our sins. He bore our failures. He took our guilt upon himself that we might not have to bear it that we might not be crushed under it. But not only does he carry our guilt, David also speaks here of him covering our sins. And again, I think this this highlights a a second aspect of God's grace for us in Christ. Not, Not only does he carry our guilt for us, but he covers over our shame. We have fallen short of God's glory. We have not been the men and the women that we were created to be. And we are rightly ashamed. I want you to hear me say that. We are rightly ashamed. I know there are some today who who say that our guilt is real, but that our shame is unwarranted. Just just Google shame and you will find all kinds of of articles telling you that that your shame is false, that you need to say no to it. And And I think I understand why people speak that way. They want to emphasize that while we have done bad things, we are still precious and beloved image bearers of of God. I, I understand that, but I want you to understand that the Bible never suggests that because we are still beloved image bearers of God that we should feel no shame. If anything... Being image bearers of God magnifies and and compounds our shame. For we were created in the image of the beautiful one. And we have gone and done what was right in our own eyes to the the harm of, of his kingdom and to the harm of our neighbors. We know this. We know what it is to to be ashamed of our sin. We know what it is to be ashamed of of being the kind of people who serve our own interests, who who seek our own ambition, who, who grasp our own desires by any and all means, regardless of the harm done to our neighbors. We we are rightly ashamed when we act in such ways. And that is one reason we try so hard to cover our sins. It's one of the reasons we we try so hard not to let people see the true depth of our iniquity. We we hide our sins because we know and, and know rightly that our sins are shameful and that we ought to be ashamed of them. What I want you to hear me say this morning is that God knows this too. He knows your sins are shameful. And he knows that your coverings will never work. He knows that that keeping your sins out of the view of other people, keeping them hidden from from your neighbors or from from your family, that that doesn't actually solve your shame problem. Your shame is real whether other people see it or not. And that is why so many of us are, are consumed by this secret sense of shame. Because we have have kept things hidden. We we are trying to make sure that that nobody sees. We're pretending it's just simply not true and it doesn't work. 
But that's why David says, blessed is the one whose sins are covered. It's why God's grace entails not merely forgiveness, but covering. You see, in Christ, we no longer need to hide as as Adam and Eve did in the garden after eating the forbidden fruit. Remember the story of of Noah. Noah was was drunk in his tent and naked. And when Ham came in to to see him, what did he do? He exposed his shame. He, He ridiculed it. But when he told his brothers, what did they do? They did not expose it. They did not put him to open shame, but rather they provided a covering. Yes, Noah was still guilty. But Shem and and Japheth, they covered him over. And this is what God does for us. We are guilty. We, We are rightly ashamed. But he does not expose us. He does not ridicule us. But rather, He provides for us the covering we so desperately need. A covering that that in time, as we even sang this morning, will make us new. A covering that does not leave us as we were, but but transforms us. It's like that, that bandage you put over the wound so that it can heal. This is what God does for us. He covers us over that He might make us new. Yes, we have fallen short we have, we have fallen short and we fall short of His glory, but He has not rejected us. He does not ridicule us, but on the contrary, He has come to us. He has loved us, and in His love, He has covered us that He might make us new. We are not yet what we will be, but because He has covered us one day, We will be like him in glory. One day we will be conformed perfectly to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We will be as we were created to be holy and blameless in the sight of our heavenly father. He deals with our shame. This then brings us to the the third phrase that David uses here. We see it there in verse 2. What does he say? He said, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. To count or to impute iniquity is to to reckon as deserving of punishment. In other words, David is saying that the person whose guilt and shame have, have been dealt with by God, do you hear it? That person is no longer liable to the just punishment of their sin. In Christ, we will not be treated as our sins deserve. In Christ, we will be treated as Christ's righteousness deserves. The full and perfect righteousness of of Christ is now counted as ours. You you see this at the very end of the the psalm when, when David says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. He's talking to sinners. And yet he he calls them righteous because their sins will not be counted against them. On the contrary, they have been counted righteous by faith in their Savior. That is the blessing that is ours. It's the blessing that that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
justified, declared righteous. Notice, because we have been justified, we now have peace with God. Our justification has brought us back into right relationship. Our justification has affected reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. For, for the guilty, for, for those whose lives are marked by transgression, for, uh, by sin and, and by iniquity. This is the only way back into blessing. The only way back into the happiness of, of right relationship with the Lord. The only hope we have is that God would forgive. That God would cover. That God would not count our sins against us. We, we cannot hide our sins. We, we cannot deal with them ourselves. Our only hope is that he would deal with them fully and finally. And so the obvious question is, how do we get this grace? How is such forgiveness obtained? How do, do guilty sinners receive the forgiveness and the, the covering and the justification that they so desperately need? This is the question that David actually begins to answer at the end of of verse 2. Look again at what David writes. He says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, if you've been paying attention to the first three lines, you you know that when he says that that blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit, he's not saying that in some absolute sense. He's talking about people whose lives are marked by transgression and sin and and iniquity. And so therefore, the last line of verse 2 cannot cannot mean blessed is the one who who has has never deceived anyone or never been deceptive in his life. Rather, he is talking about the one who, who, who ceases to be deceptive regarding his sin. Blessed is the one who speaks truly about his own condition, who speaks truly about his own sin. He, He is saying, listen, the way, the way to this forgiveness, the way into this blessing is to be honest before God. Not to to not to downplay, not to deny, not to explain away but instead to freely and openly confess your sin. It is the sinner who confesses, who says with God, I acknowledge my sin. It is this one who will be blessed. We we see David unpack this in verses 3 through 5. Notice, he describes first his own experience when he kept silent, (laughs) before he was honest about his sin. Now, we don't know the the historical context of this particular psalm like we do of Psalm 51, but we can guess. (laughs) We we can guess what David is is speaking about here, the times that he kept silent about his own sins with Bathsheba, the times he kept silent about his own sins against Uriah, in in those times of, of silence. He says, my bones wasted away. He said, I was groaning all day long. My strength was dried up. I was I was I was exhausted emotionally. He said, I I felt that that I was oppressed. And notice, this was not merely the organic consequences of his sin. Yes, sin has consequences, natural consequences, that that if you do certain things, if you say certain things, you will reap what you sow. There are natural consequences to sin, but that's not what David is talking about here. Because notice what he says. He says, the hand of God was heavy upon him. In other words, David could could not carry the the guilt of his own sin. He could not cover over his own shame because God wouldn't let him. 
God would not allow his child to flourish in his sins. And he will not allow you to flourish in your sins. It doesn't matter how well we pretend or how convincingly we argue, God will not let us live at peace with our sins. Remember the, the proverb quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, the, what, what he calls the word of encouragement addressed to us as sons. God says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And so if you are here this morning and your conscience is bothered, your conscience is pricked, your conscience is, is tormented, if it simply will not let you rest, if you know your guilt, if you know your shame, rejoice and thank God. That is His grace at work in your heart. So don't ignore it. Don't be like the mule described in, in verse 9, that mule that will only stay near God when it is compelled by bit and bridle. But rather, if your conscience is against you this morning, listen to it. Yield to it. Confess your sins. That is what David calls all sinners to do in verse 6. And, and notice that that call is based upon his own experience. He, he tells us in verse 5, I acknowledged, I did not cover, I said I will confess. And what happened? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. David broke his silence. He confessed his sin. And the Lord forgave him. And now David calls on all sinners not to emulate his foolishness. The foolishness of his silence. The long-suffering of his silence. But rather to emulate his confession. And notice it's what we've already said. He, he's addressing this to the godly. He, he's addressing this not to the sinless. That's not what godly means here. We, we, that's not possible. Why would the, the godly, if it meant sinless, why would they need to confess their sins? The godly here are rather those who acknowledge God to be God, those who, who have put their, their trust in Him. David is acknowledging here that the lives of true believers can sometimes be marked by transgression and, and sin and iniquity. It is not only unbelievers who need to confess their sin and turn to the Lord, but as Luther told us so, so famously, the life of the believer is a life of perpetual repentance, a perpetual turning away from our sin back to God. This will be your daily habit until you die and go to be with the Lord or He comes again. This is the life of the believer. We, we daily turn from our sins to God for the mercy and the grace that we need. But, but notice, notice what he says. He says, do this in the day while he may be found. Because while today is the day of salvation, it will not be ever so. That's what David is, is getting at here. He's, he's reminding us that today is the day of salvation, but there is coming a day of judgment. And if you are still in your sins on that day of judgment, then you will reap the just reward of those sins. But if we turn to God in faith, He will cleanse us of His sin. And that's what we are called to, not only when we are unbelievers separated from Him, apart from Christ, but even as believers, we are called to continually turn to Him for grace. Because those who turn to him for grace 
They will not be overwhelmed by the flood. That's, the, that's what this image of, of the, gr- the rush of great waters is all about. It is, it is the, the image of the flood representing God's judgment. And notice the one who confesses his sin, the one who takes refuge in God, the waters of judgment will not reach him. Why? Because God's judgment has already been poured out in full upon their substitute. That's the blessing. You have, you have nothing to fear in confessing your sins. Because Jesus has already died. You you have nothing to to fear in in confessing your sins because your shame can be covered by His blood. And so this morning, if you know yourself to be a sinner, this morning, if you know yourself to be one who has transgressed God's law, not just in some distant past, but even this week, even this morning, if you know yourself to be one who still falls short of the glory of God, do not remain silent. Do not hide your sin. Do not rationalize them away. Doing so will only increase your misery, for God will not allow His children to live at peace in their sins. But rather, confess your sins freely. Confess your sins fully before the Lord, and He will forgive you. He will cover your shame. He will not count uh, your trespasses against you. But rather, He will declare you righteous in His sight. That is the blessing that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And through that forgiveness, through that covering, We are brought back into the joy of our relationship with the Lord. We are are restored. We are put at peace with Him. And there in that right relationship, we find the happiness, the true and lasting happiness for which our hearts craved. For indeed, as David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And because such happiness is offered not to the sinless but to the repentant. That is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you now humbly asking that you would cause the the truths of this psalm to to put down deep roots in our hearts, Father. Uh, That we, when, when we are made aware of our sin, when we see our shame, when we are weighed down by it, that we would not remain silent, Father. That we would not pretend that... Uh, that we are better than we are, Father, but that we would fully and, and freely confess our sins that you might forgive us. Father, help us to put our trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the substitute who died in our place, that we might know your blessing. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.